Good morning, CSC. Um, would you uh, please bow your heads one more time with me? We've just prayed for our offering uh, that we give here at the church, and we are now going to pray for this time that we're entering into of opening up God's Word, and we're just going to pray that we can hear uh, and understand this morning. God, we thank you for the great privilege, the great opportunity we have uh, to dig into your holy word this morning, God. We know that your word you have given to us as bread, as sustenance for us. We need it. We need to go to it. We know, God, that your word never fails, that even as grass fades and, and flowers wither, your word will never pass away, God. And so we come expectant this morning, ready to hear uh, from your word. And I pray that you would be with me as I present it, that I would say no, no more or less than you would have me say, God, but that I would be able to get out of the way that we can see you through your scripture this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, for anybody uh, who doesn't know me or who was expecting to see Pastor Lucas up here this morning, my name is Ben. I am our director of congregational worship here at CFC, so you would normally see me up here with the musicians um, I also direct our youth group and a couple other things here at the church, um, but I'm very excited and uh, just blessed to be able to serve you in a different capacity this morning uh, in, in opening up God's Word together. Um, if you've been with us, you know that we are going through a series on the book of Numbers, not really a series, we're going through the whole book, uh, front to back, and I, as I was looking at the, the passage for this week, I, I went back to see when did we start going through numbers. It was all the way back in January. Um, so we are entering our eighth month here in the book of Numbers. We took a few breaks in there. Um, but now as we're here in August, we are at the very end of the book. We just have three chapters left. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapters 34 and 35, that is where we're going to be today. And then next week we will finish up with 36 and then we will have made it through this journey that is the book of Numbers and maybe some of you guys are excited about that. You're like, all right, finally, we've been in Numbers for eight months. Let's get out of here. Um, but I, I think I'm going to miss our, our journey in Numbers um, because I think one of the things that I've enjoyed the most uh, as we've walked through this book is that Numbers is not a book that we typically go to, you know, for our devotions in the morning. Uh, you go through the book. There's a reason why it's called the book of Numbers. You know, there are chapters in here full of numbers, full of all the people of Israel taking a census. You've got chapters full of trying to set up that camp exactly how it's supposed to be set up. There, there are chapters where you read them, and even if you kind of understand what's happening in the chapter, you're like, all right, I get it. Uh, you know, they're setting up the camp. Great. It's sometimes hard for us to discern what those chapters might have to do with our own lives, um, what those chapters might profit us in our own walks with Christ. Um, but we know that Scripture does do that. We believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, even, even the censuses and numbers, even the borders described in the numbers. Um, and we know that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training up in righteousness. And I've really enjoyed seeing how we can see the book of Numbers at play in our own lives today. I think a question that many of us, a question or a, a dilemma that many of us run into in our walk as Christians today as we are on a journey similar to the people of Israel. You know, we've, we've accepted Christ. We call Him our Lord and Savior. We follow Him. But we know that we're not home. Um, this, this time that we're in is a wilderness period that we are walking through, and we haven't made it to the promised land yet. So while we're here on this earth, while we're walking our, our walks with Christ, while we're fighting the good fight, there are moments in our lives where we can get discouraged. 
uh, for whatever reason. Um, maybe it's a sin that we keep falling back into. Uh, maybe we're like the people of Israel and we continue to rebel against God and we, we try not to and we, and we work on it, but then how oh, we mess up again. We did that same thing. I thought I, I, thought I stopped that. And it can be discouraging uh, on our journey. Or it's times when it seems like the world is against you. It seems like God is maybe not there kind of working against you. Things are not going your way. And you're tired of this journey. And you're like, man, God, I want to be at the end. I want to I be with you. Why am I struggling through this now? And I think that as we look at Numbers chapter 34 and 35 today, we're going to see a hope that we have. Um, we're going to know the hope that we have in this journey as we try to make it to the end a hope that we can cling to along the way that can encourage us, that can strengthen us as we try to make it to the end. So as we jump into chapter 34 here, before we start reading it, there's a couple things I want to tell you about these two chapters that we're going to read. Uh, the biggest thing to know is where we are in the book of Numbers. We're almost at the end. Uh, they've been go- the, the people of Israel have been going through this journey in the, in the wilderness, and they are currently, as we get to this chapter, camped on the banks of the Jordan River. And from where their camp is set up, they're right there on the Jordan. They can look across the Jordan and see the promised land. It's that close. After all of these years in the wilderness, they can see it. It's right across the river. And so what we're going to see in these chapters today is God giving the people of Israel a couple last instructions before they enter the land. We're going to see that the Lord speaks to Moses four times here in these two chapters And each time he's giving them a a rule, a directive, something to help them as they enter the land, something for them to follow right before, to to remember, right before they cross into the promised land. And I think the point of these four commands that the Lord gives to the people, each one kind of zeroes in more and more and more as you go through. He starts by telling them the borders of the land. Then he's going to tell them, hey, here are the leaders that are going to be over you in the land. And then he goes down to, here are the priests. You know, where are they going to be in the land? And he goes all the way down to six cities that he's going to talk about for a long time. Six cities and why they have those cities. And the whole point of it, the whole point why the Lord is giving them these commands before they enter the land, you can see it if you look at Numbers chapter 35, verse 34. The last verse we're going to look at today, a sneak peek to what all this is about. It says, you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. That's what these commands we're going to look at today are all about. We're going to think about what it means to be a people where God dwells with you. And what these commands have to do with Israel dwelling in the land with him. All right, so we're going to go ahead and start uh, Numbers chapter 34, verse 1. We're going to see here that God is going to set in place boundaries for his people because it's within those boundaries that he himself is going to dwell. So if you will read with me Numbers chapter 34. There's a lot of text in these two chapters. We're not going to read all of it. We'll, We'll make it out without reading the whole thing, but I'm going to just kind of go through it here. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel, And say to them, when you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you for an inheritance, the land of Canaan as defined by its borders. Your south side shall be from the wilderness of Zen alongside Edom, and your southern border shall run from the end of the salt sea on the east. And your border shall turn south of the ascent of Akrabim and cross to Zen, and its limit shall be south of Kadesh Barnea. 
Then it shall go on to Hatsar Adar and pass along to Asmon. And then the border shall turn from Asmon to the brook of Egypt, and its limit shall be at the sea. Then the Lord moves on to tell them the western border. For the western border, you shall have the great sea and its coast. This shall be your western border. That's an easy one. We got that. Uh, then the northern border. From there, the great sea, you will draw a line to Mount Hor, and so on and so on. The Lord continues here to describe the exact boundaries of the land that he is giving to his people as an inheritance. And we see that in verse 13. Uh, Moses commanded the people of Israel saying, This is the land that you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half tribe. So I was actually able to find a map here so we don't have to try and figure out what all these places are, try and trace the line in our head. We can just look at it. Um, all of the green that you see, it's a little, they're light colors, but the left side of the map is green there. Those are the borders that we just read about. Um, you can see that the south border starts by the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, and it goes south of the ascent of Akrabim, past Kadesh Barnea, what we think might be the Brook of Egypt, and all the way out to the sea, and that the western border, that's the easy one, just the sea. Um, so you can see it up there. You also notice on this map, to the right of the green is a kind of brownish area. That is the area that's described in verses 14 and 15. If you look there, it says, For the tribe of the people of Reuben by father's houses and the tribe of the people of Gad by their father's houses have already received their inheritance and also the half-tribe of Manasseh. The two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan east of Jericho toward the sunrise. So that's what you see there. Beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, east of all the green stuff, you see this kind of grayish-brown area. That is where Reuben and Gad are going to have their land and also some of Manasseh. And if you want to know why are they not on this side of the Jordan River, what are they doing over there, you can flip back two chapters to chapter 32 or go back and check out that sermon from a couple weeks ago um, where Reuben and Gad decide, actually, we want to stay on this side, and Moses eventually lets them stay there. Um, but this is it. This is the land that the Lord has given to the people of Israel and I think the question that we ask is, as, as we're in this point in Numbers, why is the Lord uh, telling the people of Israel the exact borders of the land? And I think it's pretty obvious, right? They need to know where the borders of the land are. They're about to move into this promised land. The Lord has promised it to them. And they need to know where the borders are. They need to know what area they're allowed to settle in. And even more than that, they were just commanded in the last chapter to, to wipe out all the people in the land. So they need to know which people, where are we at? So practically speaking, you know, these are kind of practical commands from the Lord that here's where it is. Here's the land you're going to dwell in. Um, but I think it's a lot more than that. Uh, it's not just practical what the Lord is doing here. It's theological. God is teaching both his people uh, in Israel at this time and us something about who he is, something about himself in the way that he gives these borders for the, land, uh, for the, for the people of Israel. And I think the first thing we see is God's great love and generosity and blessing that he is pouring out on the, on the people. If you've been with us for a lot of this, this book of Numbers, uh, there are, uh, the people of Israel just continue, continue to screw up. They rebel against Aaron. They sin. They don't follow the rules. And yet, after all of that, they get to the edge of the promised land. God gives them what he promised them all along. He pours out his blessing on them and giving them this great inheritance. And actually, if we could put it back up, uh, you'll see that this green area is massive. It's huge. God pours out his blessing on them. This is more area, actually, than Israel ever actually fills, especially kind of the north right part. They never get up there. This is so much. God blesses them abundantly more than they could ever need 
he pours out his blessing upon them in giving them this incredible inheritance, more than they could ever want. So I think we see that about God here, his great blessing and love for his people, despite all they've done to rebel against him. But I think even more than that, if we remember what these four uh, commands are about, it's about the fact that within these borders, that's where God himself is going to dwell. This is not just a land that God is giving to the people of Israel, but this is a land where he himself is going to dwell. And so he has to set up borders to say, this is where I am. And I think it works the same as any borders we have today. We understand kind of how borders work. If you live in the state of Illinois, you're within the borders that are marked out for Illinois. You have certain rules that you have to follow to live there. Um, you know that in Illinois, there's lots of taxes you have to pay. That's Illinois, right? If you, don't, if you don't pay the taxes, you get in trouble because you live here, so you have to follow the rules that are here. Uh, but if you don't want to follow the rules in Illinois, you can move. You can go to another place within other boundaries where there are other rules. Other states, there might be less taxes. Once you're in their borders, you follow what happens in that state, and you don't have to follow Illinois anymore. Uh, and that's the same thing for the people of God within these borders of the land. God is saying, this is where I dwell. When you're inside these borders... There are certain things that have to happen here. There are certain things that have to happen so you don't defile the land. There are certain rules you have to follow because you dwell with me. This is where I am. And so there are rules that happen within the borders. And it's not even just for the people of Israel. When you, when you see a border, the people around them, they say, oh yeah, when I cross that, I know that's where the Lord is. And when they look at the people who live inside the borders, they say, hey, those people look different. I wonder why. It's because the Lord dwells with them and they live way there inside those borders. So God gives these borders to the people as a way to both remind them and show them, hey, when you're in here, there's stuff that needs to happen because I dwell here, but also to say, hey, nations, look, this is where I dwell. This is what it looks like to be a part of my people inside these borders. And I think that's really the same for us today when we are a part of God's people. If you know Christ, if you've accepted him, as you follow, if you follow him as your Lord and Savior, you do dwell with God. You have been given the Holy Spirit indwelling you. You have been saved, and you are now a part of his people. And although we don't have a physical land that is given to us, we don't all live in the same place, all of the Christians in the world, um, we do have a pe- We are in some way inside the boundaries. We are inside of Christ. We are not outside of him. We're inside of him. We're a part of his people. And so that means something for us. Just like it did for the people of Israel, it means something to be a part of God's people, the people with whom he dwells. It means that when other people look at our lives, uh, they should see something different. We should not look the same as the world around us. We should not look the same as every single person in our life. We should look like we're the people of God, that we are doing something different because we are his people. We follow his rules because we are in, within his family. And I also think it means that when we're inside of, of those borders, when we're a part of the people of God, that means stuff for our life. We don't get to just you know, know Christ, uh, you know, follow him, and then slack off. Like, oh, he's got it. He's covering it. I don't have to do anything anymore. No, it's, it's a journey that we're on. That's, that's the whole point of this book that we've been looking through. We're, we're not there yet. There's a journey we have to take, and there are rules along the way that we have to follow. Once you become a Christian, once you're a part of the people, uh, you don't get to just ignore people who are hurting anymore. You have to help them. You don't get to just not, you know, hate your enemies. You have to love your enemies. It's hard work. There's stuff that comes along with being a part of the people of God. There's stuff that comes along with being a Christian. And like I said at the beginning today, I think that we all know and we all experience those times when we know we are not looking like the people of God. If you're anything like me, it happens all the time. 
You don't look like you're supposed to look like. You don't look like you're a part of the people of God and you continue to fail. So we're going to keep reading. It seems like it might be hard to be in the borders. You know, We know that it's a hard journey once you're in, but God doesn't just leave us to our own devices when we're in the borders. He's going to, we're going to see in the next two commands, He's going to set leaders over His people so that they are able to dwell with Him. Those leaders are there to help the people dwell with God. So that's what we're going to see in this next section, starting in chapter 34, verse 16. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land to you for an inheritance, Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. You shall take one chief from every tribe to divide the land for inheritance. These are the names of the men. Of the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Of the tribe of the people of Simeon, Shemuel, the son of Amihud. And on and on and on it goes. It, it picks, God decides one leader for each tribe who's going to split up the land. And we see in verse 29 that these are the men whom the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance for the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. So God has given them the borders, um, and then he sets people over them to help them divide up the land. They're told they need to divide it up uh, by the size of tribes. So big tribes, they need to get more land. Small tribes, they need smaller lands. And God knows that there's no way they're going to be able to figure that out on their own. He has to set leaders over them to help them with that process. And I think some of these leaders here, uh, you should know some of the names there. Eleazar the priest, we've seen a lot in this book. Joshua the son of Nun, the, uh, the leader who's going to follow Moses and lead the people of Israel you see Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for the tribe of Judah. He was one of the spies uh, who went into the land. And then the other names, we don't really know. Um, they just show up here. I think there's one name, though, that stood out to me as I, as I read this list. All of them made sense to me. And in my mind, if you just ask me without reading this passage, who's going to be the one to help divide up the land for the people? Who's, who's in charge? It's Joshua, right? He's the one who's in charge of the people. He's, he's taken Moses' mantle. He's, he's leading the people. We see it's not just Joshua. There's another name there, Eleazar the priest. In fact, he's the first name that's listed. When God says, hey, these are, going to people, these are going to be the people that divide you up. Eleazar, your high priest, he's one of the people doing it. Um, and I think that this shows us that it's not just a, a military operation that they're embarking on in the land. It's not like they just need the leaders of the tribes to go in, they take everybody out, and then they all just argue about where the land goes, and it's just a civil, you know, civic dispute and they try and figure it out. It's more than that. This is a religious takeover of the land. The priests are the ones leading this dividing of the land because this is where God dwells. It's more than just a new house, you know, for the people of Israel. This is where God is going to live. So he has to set the priests in charge of this, this religious move that his people are making. When we continue on to chapter 35, verse 1, and we read this next section where God focuses in then on the Levites. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of the inheritance of their possession as cities for them to dwell in. And you shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to dwell in, and their pasture lands shall be uh, for their cattle and for their livestock and for all their beasts. He goes on to uh, measure out like the exact measurements of what needs to be given to the Levites. And then picking up again in verse 6, The cities that you give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge, where you shall permit the manslayer to flee. And in addition to them, you shall give 42 cities. All the cities that you give to the Levites shall be 48 with their pasture lands. 
And as for the cities that you give from the possession of the people of Israel, from the larger tribes you take many, and from the smaller tribes you shall take few, each in proportion to the inheritance that it inherits, shall give of its cities to the Levites. Again, we see here as they're on the cusp of the land that um, practically the Levites need somewhere to go. God is, God is making sure that the Levites have a place to go because if you remember earlier in Numbers, and we see this other places uh, in the first five books of the Bible as well, that the Levites, they have been set apart and consecrated to work for the Lord so that they don't have an inheritance in the land. If you look up a, you know, the map of where all the tribes end up, Levi, Levi's not on there. They don't have land for themselves. Uh, because they serve the Lord. They've been set apart to serve him in the temple and in the tabernacle. So God needs to ensure that the Levites then have a place to live. And so in a similar way that the other tribes tithe to the Levites so that they can do their work in the temple, they now tithe and give some of their own cities in their own land so that the Levites have somewhere to go. Again, I think it's, it's more than just practical. It's more than just securing this inheritance for the Levites. But it's again this fact that the Levites were the ones with whom uh, the, the people of Israel had to go to to communicate with God. They had to mediate between the people um, because the people were unclean. They, they had to com- continue to do the sacrifices. They had to continue to do all this stuff. And if, in order to, to go to God, the people of Israel had to go to the Levites. And so God makes sure that the Levites are spread throughout the land, on both sides of the Jordan, all over the place, making sure that the Levites are there. Because this is the land where the Lord dwells. He's with his people here and they need to have access to him through those Levites throughout the land. God knows that the people of Israel can't make this move into the promised land on their own. He sets leaders over them to help divide up the land and he spreads out the Levites throughout the land so that they can have access to him everywhere they go in the land. And I think similarly today, um, among the people of God, the Lord has set in place people around you for a reason. God sets the church in its place. God sets and ordains pastors and leaders and preachers and teachers and evangelists. He gifts us within congregations, within his people, uh, to be there for each other on this journey. We are not making this journey alone, but he has given us a people. Uh, Christianity, it can't be a an individual religion. You can't just have your Bible at home and just make it on your own. I think all of us know we fail when we do that. When we are just on our own trying to do it all, we can't. We, we actually can't do it on our own. And so God has set people around us uh, to help us, to come alongside us, to encourage us. That's why we have this church. That's why we come when you've had a, a bad week, you fell into that su- same stupid thing again, you sin, you're like, man, I did it again. And you're discouraged and you come into the church on Sunday morning and you stand here and you sing with your brothers and sisters and you, and you hear them praising God and, and they draw you into your worship. And you're like, yes, I do need to praise God. And they encourage you and they lift you up. And we come here and we hear from God's word and we go to our small groups and we get to walk through life together with people. God has set people in our life to help us on this journey. But it's still not enough. It's still not enough to have people walking alongside us on this journey. It's still not enough. We continue to mess up. I know we've all been in that place where we have just been doing really well. The quiet times are happening. We're really getting into God's word. We're really coming to him in prayer. We're, we're praising and worship. We're really, we love God. And we still mess up and we're so discouraged by it because we thought we were doing good. You know, we thought we could make it. We were doing good on this journey and then all of a sudden, again, again we sin. Again we stumble. 
And God knows that. God knows that even though he's given these people, uh, these leaders to the people, these priests to help the people dwell with him, he knows that they're still going to fail. And so we're going to see in this last section where we'll spend the rest of our time, it's the longest section we'll go through, that the Lord provides both refuge and atonement for his people because he desires to dwell with them. And so he makes a way to dwell with them. He provides them with refuge and atonement. We'll go ahead and read, uh, starting in verse 9. And I'm going to go all the way to 34. I'm not going to read all of it. We'll skip a few parts in there, but we'll just kind of read the whole thing. And then we'll talk about what's going on in this section. Verse 9, chapter 35. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person without intent may flee there. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And so uh, God is going to continue on here up until verse 21, defining what is murder. Uh, And it has a lot to do with, if you see verse 20, if you lie in wait to kill the person, if you have hatred towards that person, if you have enmity toward that person um, and you kill them, then that is murder. And then if you see at the end of verse 21, the avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But, verse 22, if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or or hurled anything on him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and he did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of the city, and his avenger kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. For he must remain in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. And these things shall be a statute and a rule for you throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. So we're going to go back and and break all that down that just happened there. And there's a lot of text, but I want to keep reading 30 to 34 here where God clarifies some of the things that he just talked about. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. 
And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. All right, that was a lot of stuff there. We've got to break it down and figure out what's happening here. Um, our, our first question is, why? It seems like a bit, a bit of a turn to me as you're kind of reading through here. You're like, all right, borders, leaders, priests, uh, manslayer versus murderer. It seems kind of like not related to what else is happening in, this, in these chapters. But I think it's what I mentioned just a few minutes ago, that the Lord knows that the people of Israel are not going to be able to do this. There's no way that they're going to be able to live in the land with him and not defile the land. And like it says there in verse 33, uh, blood pollutes the land. When an innocent blood is shed within the land, that pollutes it, and the Lord can't dwell there when when the land is polluted by innocent blood. And so what the Lord does is he makes a way for the people of Israel who accidentally kill somebody to, to take refuge and not die. How this worked was, and this you can see more about um, these laws, about when people, you know, this is all throughout the law, like what happens when somebody murders somebody. The penalty for that is always death. And how it works is um, whoever gets killed, their closest relative then is free to kill the original person who killed them, if that makes sense. It's like a triangle. You kill this guy, their brother kills you. Um, And the reason for that is given there, again, in verse 33, you shall not pollute the land in which you live. No atonement can be made for the blood that is shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it. And so what God does is he knows that people are going to accidentally kill other people on the way. Anything can happen. They're literally walking into the land. Somebody could trip and knock into a guy and he could roll down and hit his head. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to happen. He knows that the people of Israel are going to screw it up. So he says, I don't think that people who innocently, accidentally kill somebody should be put to death immediately, even though they have to. Their blood has to atone for that. So I'm going to make these cities so they can escape there and they can live out the rest of their days there without dying because they didn't mean to do it. I'm going to let them live. And I think as I, as I kind of read this, I was like, man, that seems in some ways kind of harsh, right? Like you accidentally killed a guy and now you have to live in another city away from everybody else for the rest of your life. I was like, man, what in the way, you know, couldn't there, was there any other way to do this? Could, could, could they have you know, made a sacrifice, something to, to fix this? And they can't. And you see that actually it is God's great mercy to let that person live And it goes back to that verse 33 again. Um, Blood pollutes the land and no atonement can be made except for the one who shed it. This is a Christian um, teaching and and a Jewish teaching for thousands of years that we are made, each and every one of us, in the image of God. Um, We are made uh, specifically, intentionally by God, each one of us unique, each one of us bearing his image. And so our lives are worth more than anything else on earth. Nothing can pay for them. Um, again, we see this throughout Scripture. We see this in this passage if you look at verses 31 and 32. You shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer uh, who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. That's because there's no amount of money, no amount of land, no amount of cattle, no amount of anything you could pay that would equal the price of the human life that this person took. 
There's no way to pay your way out of it. The only thing that is at the same level of a human life that has been taken is human life. It's the most precious thing. This is something, again, that the church has taught forever. If you want another, you don't have to turn there, but another example of this, this principle we can find in uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, where God tells Noah, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And so that's the idea. If you, if you accidentally, even if it's an accident, if, if you at all shed innocent blood, then the blood is on your head and you have to atone for it with your own life. That's the only option. So God makes another option because he knows Israel is going to be able to do it. He lets them go to the city of refuge and in his great mercy, he lets them live. He lets them put off that punishment, put off their death until the end of their life. We see that the, the manslayer who flees to these uh, cities of refuge, he lives there either until, you know, he lives there until the rest of his life and then when he dies at the end of his life, that is the atonement for, that, for the life he took. He's dead now, his life is gone and so that's the same. It's all, it's all made right. But God is even, even more merciful than that, even more merciful than just letting them escape and have refuge. He finds a way for someone else to atone for their sin that they committed. He finds a way for someone else to take that penalty of death on themselves so that the manslayer can walk free. He can leave the city. This only happens when, you see it in verse uh, 27, oh, 28, for he must remain in his city until the death of of the high priest, but after the death of the high priest, he may return to the land. And you see in 32 that uh, you can't offer refuge for the person before the death of the high priest. What God has done here is he's not only provided refuge in the city, but he's provided a way for their sin to be atoned for by someone else. His high priest at this point, Eleazar, he said, actually, I'm going to let Eleazar's death count for the death that you owe. If Eleazar dies, then you can walk free, completely free of guilt, because someone, there was still justice done. Punishment was still done. Somebody died, but I put it on somebody else. I let the high priest be the one to take the fall so that you can walk free. We see how much God loves the people of Israel that he knows they're going to mess it up. They're going to accidentally kill people. He says, you know what? I'm going to give you refuge so you don't have to die. And in fact, I'm even going to make a way that you can get out of it completely through the death of the high priest. That is how much God desires to dwell with his people. He, he takes punishment that his, somebody and his people deserves and puts it on someone else. And we see that this idea of God wanting to dwell with his people, it's an idea that runs through all of Scripture. It's from the beginning pages of Scripture. God made us to be in communion with him, in relationship with him, dwelling with him in the garden, and we mess it up. We sinned. We were separated from him. And then the rest of the pages are him bringing us back into his presence, dwelling with us again. And he does that here through these cities of refuge. But we know ultimately he does that through the blood of Jesus Christ, his great high priest. He allows our punishment to be put on him. The death that we deserved for sinning, for separating ourselves from God, he takes it away from us. He puts it on his own son, the great high priest, who dies for the sins of his people. And he, he rises again so that we can live with him. And we know then that while we are on this journey uh, as God's people um, that we're in, we've been saved by Christ, but we're not there yet. We're not to that final day where God has promised that he will dwell with us. And so on the way, throughout this journey as we go along, we can hope in the fact that we know that Jesus Christ has atoned for our sins. We can take refuge in him knowing that he is the one who has already taken away our sins. And we can hope in that final day 
the reason why God did all of this so that we could come back to dwell with him, that the dwelling place of God is with man, that he's going to wipe every tear from our eye, that death will be no more, and neither will there be pain or suffering or crying anymore because we will be dwelling in the presence of God who is pure, purely good and purely life, and we will be with him. And so for us, as we're on this journey, as we're discouraged, that is what we can take hope in. Even as we continue to fail, even as we are with each other, uh, as our people being encouraged and we still mess up, God has made a way for us to take refuge and atonement in him through Jesus. We can cling to that hope that we will dwell with him one day. And even for those of us who have heard this message a million times, we know the gospel we're in, we're, we're, we're following Jesus Preaching the gospel to yourself, knowing the gospel, that is your encouragement as you walk through this life. You know that you're going to dwell with God, that Jesus has made a way for you to do that. If there's anyone here who does not know him, does not have uh, that, that refuge in him, it is there. It's offered to you. You can, you can have communion with him. You can dwell with him right now through the Holy Spirit and ultimately with him in the final day. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for these words.